It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. You're tuned into Christian Questions. Join the conversation now on air or online at ChristianQuestions.com and download our app by searching for Christian Questions Radio. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Frank Sonnenberg once said, Trust is like blood pressure. It's silent, vital to good health, and if abused, it can be deadly. Good evening, I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan, and that different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Folks, thanks for joining us this evening. This is a call-in format, and we are caller-friendly, so let's get started. Good evening, Jonathan. What's up? What's happening? Hey, Rick. (laughs) Our question for this evening is, how do you know God can trust you? And our theme text is found in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. So that's a strange question. How do you know God can trust you? Trust is a tricky thing. In some instances, it comes to us with ease. As children, we typically trust our parents above all others. As we become adolescents, we often lose that trust because we've replaced it with trusting our friends, uh, who are obviously much, much cooler than our parents. Of course, of course. (laughs) Much smarter than our parents. You know how that is. Mm -hmm. When adults, that door again, once again opens to trusting our parents because, well, you know, because somehow they became smart again. It's a a really (laughs) miracle of life is what it is. So, but let's look at trust from the other side. Parents will or will not trust a child based upon what they see in that child regarding maturity and integrity. A child really has to earn their parents' trust, and that usually takes time and evidence. It's the same way with God. We obviously should trust him at all times and for all things. Of course. The real question here is, can, should God trust us? What must we do or be to warrant our Father in heaven truly trusting us. And Jonathan, I would venture to say this is a question that most people don't think to ask a lot. You're right, but it's a good question, a serious question. It's one that you have to look in the mirror and try to answer. Right. So how do we become trustworthy, not not to our friends, not to our family, not to others, but to God himself? How can we be trusted by him? So, to address our trustworthiness before God, we're going to use the parable of the landowner. Now, this is maybe not one of the more popular parables that everybody's heard about, but it does appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Matthew introduces this particular parable, this particular story, as a second parable. You know, there, there's two parables in a row that Jesus uses to make a vital point about the short-sighted and untrustworthy actions of the Pharisees. So the key is we're going to discuss trust in God's eyes by looking at those that God could not trust. Makes sense. And by seeing what 
continually went wrong or what continually was wrong or what continually was put in place that ended up wrong. We'll know how to avoid it. <laughs> right. Exactly. 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 So the context of the parable, we're going to start with that. We're not even going to get to the parable right off the bat here. Uh, the context of the parable is the day after the cleansing of the temple. Remember when Jesus tossed out all the money changers? Yep. Uh, and it's the day after he cursed the fig tree. So this is literally right before his crucifixion. Okay, we're, we're, we're right up against the edge of the crucifixion experiences. So let's look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 27, to get started with putting the discussion of trustworthiness in the eyes of God on the table. When he, that is Jesus, entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Okay, so right there, he enters the temple, and he's, he, is, um, he, he cleared it out, and now he's teaching. It's like he caused this great ruckus. Everybody got all upset. They're all running around, and they've all kind of cleared out because... It, and, and, and Jesus is now left, and he's teaching the people there. And it's kind of a calm thing after the storm. So, so the Pharisees come up to him, and they're a little bit miffed. <laughs> a little. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're demanding, okay, who gave you the right to do the things you're doing and to, to, to teach the things you're teaching? Where, who do you think you are? That's, that's the kind of, uh, of approach that you hear from them. So Jesus is going to answer them. Or is he? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? So Jesus asks them a question that you think about and you say, well, what has that got to do with the price of eggs in China? I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it seems like it's completely unrelated. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, okay, you want to know about authority. You want to know about spiritual authority. Well, let's go back a few years and let's look at spiritual authority. You tell me if John the baptizer had spiritual authority from God or not. Because Jesus was going to tie John's baptism into his direct work. And the Pharisees knew that they were in trouble with this. So, so, what, so he didn't answer their question. It, he asked a question. It said he asks a question. So, so what's their response? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why do you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. Now, here's a, just, let's just pause here for a minute. There's, there's a lot of questions that come to my mind as, you, as you're reading this, okay? They're saying, okay, and, and can you imagine they ask Jesus this question, and then they go off and they huddle. And in the huddle, <laughs> they're, they're, they're whispering back and forth. Well, look, if we say the authority of John was from God, then they're gonna, he's not, obviously going to say, well, how come you didn't believe him? And then we're going to be stuck because we're going to look like we didn't believe a prophet of God. And then what, what are the people going to think? Okay, but if we say it was from men, the people believed he was from God. So if we say, no, he wasn't from God, then the people are going to be mad at us. So they're in a corner. And Jesus knew 
that they would be in a corner because he knew that this was something they could not process with honesty. They couldn't process it with integrity. And that's why he asked him this. He wasn't trying to get out of answering the question. He was trying to teach them by their question that they had issues. And so it, it is a brilliant, brilliant object lesson from Jesus to, to the Pharisees. So they conclude the answer is, we don't know. That way they don't have to commit themselves to anything. And boy, what a cop-out that is. <laughs> it's it just, you really know, I, I mean, what do you stand for? If you, if, if you can't stand for when asked, you can't stand up for what you truly believe, then, then where are you going? And, and this is what Jesus was, was trying to focus them on. So now, again, the, the, the context of our conversation tonight is about being trustworthy in God's eyes. And you can already see how the Pharisees and their vacillating back and forth and trying to appear correct before the people but not contradict themselves but try to get the best of Jesus, all of their, 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 their sub-thinking was, was messing up they're looking at all trustworthy. So they say, okay, we don't know. So what, what's Jesus say to them? He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So basically he says to them, you can't answer my question, so I won't answer yours. But the interesting thing is, if you analyze what just happened, Jesus actually did answer the question because he trapped them in their own false reasoning. But they couldn't see it. They wouldn't see it. So this is a, an object lesson for us, actually, in trust. And, Jonathan, as we go through trust, we're going to use eight what we call pillars of trust. Now, these eight pillars, yeah, I would love to be able to tell you that I made these up, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> these, I think, are absolutely brilliant. They were written, uh, David Horsager has written several books on trust, and these are, are a theme from one of his books on trust, uh, and he calls them the eight pillars of trust. Uh, so what we did is we, we're taking these pillars of trust, and we're going to put them in place in relation to spirituality. So we're going to take just the basic pillar and then build on it. So pillar of trust number one is clarity. Clarity always fosters trust. For us to be worthy of God's trust, we must not only think and profess, but live a life of clarity in his service. And in the exchange that we just read between the Pharisees and Jesus, you can see there was no clarity on their perspective. No, no, there was not. They were trying to do something, they were trying to accomplish something, but they were stuck. They were stuck inside their own reasoning and they couldn't even answer a simple question because they saw it as being uh, too, too costly, to be honest. So clarity is one of the very bases of trust. God can trust us if we have clarity in relation to his will. So, Jonathan, we're going to use um, not only the eight pillars of trust by David Horsager, uh, but we, he gave a TED Talk. He's given many, many, many talks. He's a very, very, very good speaker. Uh, he gave a TED Talk at the University of uh, Minnesota, I believe it was. And uh, he told a personal story in relation to trust. And this is a great story. <laughs> this, is, this is a great story. We were laughing about it before we started tonight. We were. Um, so we're going to introduce the story. He's, the theme is trust. And he's talking about, you know, his parents used to live out, 
out in the in the boondocks. They had a bean farm, and he moved into the city. And you know, he hadn't gone back to see them with his kids. You know, he's, he's established himself. And um, you know, there's a local rodeo, and th- that happens all the time there. And his dad was always bugging him about going to this rodeo back to to this little town of 500 people. And so this is the beginning of this story uh, about a trust uh, by David Horsager. All right, now wait a minute. How come we don't have any? David, when are you gonna bring the grandkids up to the road? All right, you know what? Dad still live at the. Up I just the farm. started it again. On the farm, Dad's 85 now, but he kept calling. He said, Dad, David, when are you gonna bring the grandkids up to the rodeo? Because even though only 500 people live in Verndale, 2,000 people come every night to one of the biggest rodeos in Minnesota. People come from all over. So finally, three, two, three years ago, I said, Dad, we'll be there. We take the kids out of school early. We head up. To Verndale, we get there. Dad's got tickets for us, and we get to the short line. We get a great spot on the bleachers. Now, if you haven't been to a rodeo for a while, first half of the rodeo, the cowboys and cowgirls, they rope things. Second half of the rodeo, they get bucked off of things. But in the middle, it's your opportunity for the locals to get involved. They call it mutton busting. This is where they let five to eight-year-old kids See how long they can last riding a sheep, <laughs> a big sheep. Okay, mutton busting. Now that's something I never heard. That's of. something new to me too. Yeah. Hey Rick, were you ever to a rodeo before? No, I have never been to a rodeo. But me neither. <laughs> he makes it sound pretty interesting. So the first half of the rodeo, you know, the cow, the the cowboys and girls, they rope things. The second half, they get bucked off of things. But in between. Kids get to ride sheep to see how long they can last, riding through the ring, you know, the 2,000 people and all that. Mutton busting. So, okay, this is a story that's going to teach us about trust. We're going to have to see how this story develops. It's just the introduction. We're going to come back to it uh, each segment throughout the program. And it's a great, great, great story. So we're talking about clarity as the first pillar of trust. Clarity always does foster trust. So let's take a look at an example of clarity and its ability to foster trust. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. So it's kind of a, almost, it's fascinating. You see Jesus saying, okay, but don't make an oath by heaven or or by earth or or by Jerusalem or by your head or your hair or it's like well what is he talking about you're right it's very confusing <laughs> and you know the common the common phrase that we hear is let your yay be yay and your nay be nay right and that's just mean what you say basically and Rick, I was thinking that these verses are telling us that vows are serious. Right. And um, the two most important vows I can think of, uh, the first is dedication to God to do his will. Right. Um, the vow, I call it, of consecration. And the second is the marriage vow, which pictures Christ in the church. And we are not to break them once made. 
Yeah, that, those, those are very, you're right, very, very serious and important promises. There's no question about that. Let, let's, let's try to define a little bit about what happens within this verse. Why does Jesus bring up all these other things? You know, he never says anything for no reason. He's always got very, very good reasons. Barnes, uh, Bible commentary, gives us a good background, a good historical snapshot of why he brought all of these things up. It appears that while they professly adhere to the law, they had introduced a number of oaths in the temple, by the head, by heaven, by the earth. So long as they kept from swearing by the name Jehovah, and so long as they observed the oaths publicly taken, they seemed to consider all others as allowable and allowably broken. This is the abuse which Christ wished to correct. So what he's doing is he's looking at the habits of the Pharisees throughout history of building all of these other ways of making themselves look important, making themselves look prominent, making themselves uh, look like they know what they're doing by making a promise by this and by that. And he's saying that's all nonsense because you yourself know that you're making that promise, but you also know you can break that promise. So don't make it at all. If you're going to make a promise, make it. And Rick, the sin of power, we can see that. Power and prestige is what they wanted, and it really went to their heads. It did. Absolutely did. So, so with, each, with each pillar of clarity, there is a trustworthiness test. The first trustworthiness test is uh, regarding clarity. When we're asked the hard questions, just like the Pharisees were in the previous verses, do I try to squirm out of giving an honest answer by seeking that which would be considered politically correct or expedient? Can God trust my clarity? Am I willing to just answer the hard question? Do I have to play around with it, or am I going to be direct, clear, and concise in my answer so God can actually trust me? This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject, how do you know God can trust you? Coming up, the next pillar is compassion. Compassion towards who or what? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today's episode is, How do you know God can trust you? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Christian Questions, a weekly habit that's good for you. Thanks for tuning us in every Monday evening. Join our conversation any day and time at ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so the conversation is all about trust, but it's not the typical conversation about how can I trust you and how can you trust me, but it's can God trust you or me? That's what it really is about. We're looking at scriptural uh, writings, the teachings of Jesus in relation to the Pharisees who were not trustworthy and gleaning the lessons of trust as we observe the things that they were so far off on. So that's where we're going. But we're also talking about mutton busting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yes, kids holding on to sheets and not, <laughs> not letting go. <laughs> All right, so if you missed the first segment, uh, this is a story by David Horsager. It's a true story about his family. They went to a rodeo. That's in the hometown that he grew up in, you know, way out in, in Minnesota somewhere, a little tiny town. They had this rodeo every night, and mutton busting is giving the children, the five- to eight-year-old children, a chance to ride a sheep to see who could last the longest and win the trophy. So um, they he brings his kids to their very first rodeo, and that's as far as we've gotten. We've heard about the description of mutton busting. Uh, that's what they call it. It's in between all of the real performances. So let's go back to David Horsager, and he is the author of several books on trust, and the pillars of trust that we're using were, were, were his. So uh, his story is very poignant in relation to those pillars. Let's go back to his personal story at the rodeo. So it's almost time for uh, for this halftime, and the big announcer down by the American flag. Ladies and gentlemen, it's almost time for mutton busting. I'm going to read off the names. I pull up the hat. Those of you families and kids that put your names in the hat, I'm just going to go ahead and read off your names. First eight names that I pull out. Come on down here to the bull gate, and we'll get started. Starts reading off the names. Billy, Susie, Vanessa Horsager, Isaiah Horsager. I look over at my stoic Norwegian father. He just smiles. <laughs> My two kids, they look up at me in terror. <laughs> I put my arms around Vanessa and I said, this is going to be fun. <laughs> we walk around the bleachers, all the way around the American flag, all the way over to the bull gate. And there's a lady there to tell us how this works. Okay, kids, here's what you do. Now, you just get on the sheep and the sheep takes off and you'll fall off. But don't worry, the whole arena is sand. It's like a big, giant sandbox. This is fun. <laughs> My kids are not buying it. <laughs> okay, so his mutton busting uh, is what's going to be happening. Uh, his, and his dad set him up. His dad set him up <laughs> so his kids could get to be a, be a part of it. So, again, this is a story of trust, and you can see where trust is going to be needed very soon in that story. So we're, we're going to put that story on hold, come back to it in a few minutes. Uh, actually, in the in the, uh, in the next segment. So, so let's continue the context now, the, the scriptural context of understanding how trust actually works by observing how it doesn't work. Uh, the, remember at the very beginning we said the parable that we're going to be focusing on, the parable of the landowner, was the second of two parables. That's right. Okay, so we're going to go through, very. it's a very short parable. The first parable that Jesus gives before it is also a parable about trust. So this is Matthew 21, 28 to 32. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Okay, it's a really simple question. The one guy says, nah, I don't want to, but then he does because he feels like he should. The other says, oh, absolutely, I'm going, but doesn't. So this simple question is, which one did what they were supposed to do? What's the answer? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. So this was a short little story. 
He's talking to the Pharisees. They answer the question, and in their answer, they condemn themselves because they're pictured by the, uh, the second son who said, yes, I'll do the work that you said, Father, but they don't. And Rick, the first guy did what was right, but he complained. And the second guy was unreliable, not a man of his word. And that pictured, as you mentioned, the Pharisees. Right. And the first guy didn't want to do what was right originally. Right. But he came around. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and that's why the sinners of that day, those who were not trying to pursue the law, Jesus was talking about them in a good light, saying, okay, they may not be doing well now, but, you know, when they come around and they get it, they're going to get it. So, the interesting thing is, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you know, you didn't even feel remorse. Why didn't they feel remorse? They're, how come there's no repentance for their position? See, and they didn't care about the sinners. They didn't care about the people who, who actually came around to do the will of God, and they didn't seem to care about the fact that they weren't doing the will of God. So you, you say, well, what was wrong with them? And this is a trust issue. This brings up to us to the second pillar of trust, and that is compassion. To have compassion is to care about others. It is to, at, it is to at your own expense, Make room in your heart for embracing the hardships and failures of those whom you not normally even notice. So, compassion is an absolute key to being trustworthy. If you are a person who has compassion, you are a person who therefore has the potential to be worthy of trust. This is what Jesus is bringing out here. So, do we have clarity? Do we have compassion? Right. Those are the Look f- in the mirror that we're, we're asking ourselves right. this. Right. Okay. Do, uh, do I have these things? Do I have these things? I mean, are, are these things that something that I can say, yes, I, I either have or I'm really, really working on? We'd like to talk to you right now. We're live. Call us at 866-985-FOR-ALL. That's 866-985-4255. Or leave us a comment at ChristianQuestions.com. So, compassion. Let's talk about compassion. Let's look at it from some other teachings of Jesus. Let's try to understand it and then put it back in the context of trust. And most importantly, this, this conversation this evening, Jonathan, is really about can God trust me? Not do I trust God. Not do I trust you. Not do you trust me. But can God trust me? One of the pillars of trustworthiness is having compassion. When we have compassion, that gives God an avenue uh, through which to trust us. Let's look at an example of that. Again, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, uh, verses 43 to 46. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So Jesus is talking about love and compassion. And the kind of love and compassion in these verses that Jesus directs us to is not natural. Okay, It's certainly not easily attainable. Because it requires a commitment to be a willing target of ridicule. But that's where compassion really shines. 
compassion really shines out when others are not compassionate. When you go out of your way for someone who may need a hand and everybody else is ignoring them. And it shines out because you are reaching out to, 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 to draw them up, to draw them higher, to do something for them. And I always look at you like, well, you know, what are you wasting your time with him for? I mean, and what about compassion for your enemies? Yeah. Now there is the test. Right, right. How do you do that? How, yeah. how do you have compassion for your enemies? Because, you know, your enemies, depending on the situation, are oftentimes convicted by whatever it is they believe in. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're both wrong. But do we have compassion on that human being? That's really the, the, the key here. So our trustworthiness test in relation to compassion here. This is a test. This is only a test. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a test that you need to do in front of the mirror. You need to do this and say, okay, where am I? We trustworthiness test on compa compassion. Do my observations of others in their hardship often provoke me to respond with a helping hand and an open heart? Or do my observations often result in harsh gestures and a closed heart. See, Jonathan, the question really is, in this trustworthiness test, can God trust my compassion? Mm. And folks, that is one of the biggest tests that we will ever come across. Because, you know, sometimes with compassion, compassion can be misplaced. You know, if somebody is purposefully doing things wrong and they end up in a really messy situation, does compassion say, here, let me pull you out of that messy situation so you can go do wrong things again and let yourself, you know, work yourself into a, another bad situation? Or is compassion in that situation saying, look, let me help you see how you got here. Let me help you see how you need to get yourself out of there. Let me show you the way. Which is the real compassion? See, oftentimes we look at compassion, we think about compassion, and we frame it in the context of, oh, I've got to help everybody for, no matter what the situation is. We have to be careful that what we're contributing to others with our compassion is righteous, is just, and is godly. Because... God is God does not want us to contribute to somebody else's wrongdoings. No, he doesn't. But he wants us to be compassionate. And, you know, and again, that's where Jesus said, love your enemies. Well, how do you do that? You don't, you don't verify and put a stamp of approval on the wrong or bad things that they're doing, but you have compassion on that human being for whatever their experiences, their, their, their experiences are. Okay, now we've gone through almost two segments. Now let's get to the main story, shall we? Okay, All right. Okay, not mutton busting. That's coming up next segment. But, uh, but uh, the main parable, and let's start this parable. We're going to read a few verses, and then we're going to start to identify some of the characters involved. Matthew 21, 33, and 34. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Okay, so here's the second parable. And the landowner, first of all, is God. Okay, 
And the previous parable set this up. The previous parable basically told us that the landowner in this parable was going to be God. But yes. Were you going to say something before that? or No. Oh, no. okay. Okay. Um, so in the previous parable, if we go back to verse 28 of Matthew 21, it, it says, Son, go to work in the vineyard. And then in verse 31, what does it say in the previous parable? Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Okay, so you have this sense of, okay, God is the Father, obviously in that first parable. Right. And, and so he's, this next parable just follows right afterwards. So and the parable, the theme of the parables is God's in charge. So God's in charge in the first one. God's obviously going to be in charge in the second parable. So he is the landowner. This is God and his vineyard and his hired help taking care of this vineyard. So we've got God as the landowner. So now we've got to figure out, okay, who, what is represented by this vineyard? That's right. And uh, spiritual Israel is something that we, we believe uh, to be the case. All right. Now, why would we say spiritual Israel? There's, there's several reasons. First, let's go to a scripture, uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Okay, so you've got in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it's speaking very clearly that the house of Israel is the vineyard. So yes. it's an Old Testament picture. But you know, there, there's two aspects to the house of Israel. And one of the things we want to, and, and we don't have time to go into it in, in this particular program, but Israel is often represented as a fig tree. Mm -hmm. Okay? Right. The fig tree represents the physical house of Israel. The vineyard would represent the spiritual part of Israel. And it's the vineyard part that was up for grabs at this point that was going to be cast off. That's what the purpose of this parable was. So let's just go to uh, just a, a couple of quick comments here from Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary about the setup of a vineyard. Vineyards were hedged or fenced as protection from wild animals. In each vineyard, a tower was erected and a guard placed to protect the vines from robbers. Okay, so according to, to the uh, Nelson's uh, Illustrated Bible Dictionary then, vineyards were set up typically in the same way all over the place. They were important. They were important enough to have a watchtower in them so somebody could, could, could watch. They were important enough to have a wall built around them so the wild animals couldn't get in and ruin the crops. So obviously they were important enough to have the right people tending them as well. And we're going to get to that in the next segment. So the key is that in this parable, now remember, Jesus is right on the cusp of his crucifixion experiences. These are some of, not the very last, but some of the last teachings that he is going to give to the Pharisees. And he's trying to tell them that they have not been worthy of God's trust. He's trying to tell them in all kinds of different ways and this is one of his last ditch efforts to give them a sense of how badly they've screwed up. Rick, they were stewards. They were given responsibility. Right. They didn't do their job. Right, right. And they didn't do their job again and again and again and again. And it was a historical thing 
with, uh, with uh, Israel, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, in, in the bonus material, we have a parable, an Old Testament parable of a vineyard that's a little bit different, but it's talking about the same basic lack of trust that God has and the pulling apart of that vineyard and the destruction of that vineyard because those who cared for it did a bad job. They didn't do a mediocre job. They did a bad job. And when you do a bad job taking care of God's things, that's a bad sign. It's just, it's just not good, no matter how you cut it. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject is, how do you know God can trust you? Coming up. So back in the day, what kind of occupation was a vine grower? Menial labor or much more than that? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today's episode is, How do you know God can trust you? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL, or you can message us your app. Christian Questions, a voice of reason in a world that's lost its way. Keep in touch at ChristianQuestions.com. So, Jonathan, as we get started with this uh, third segment of the program, it's about how do you know God can trust you? We've talked about the pillar of clarity, the pillar of compassion, and what's coming next? Well, I would like at this time to thank our very own Julie, from CQ Rewind for joining us for this very important topic on being trustworthy. Welcome, Julie. Hi, Rick and Jonathan. How are you? Doing great. How are you? Great. Wonderful. Well, I, I just wanted to bring up one of the scriptures that I think about really often, almost on a daily basis, and that's Luke 16.10. I'll read it from the New International Version, Luke 16.10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Now, this is a big deal because the Bible is full of examples of God telling us there is great power in small things. And I know Rick appreciates sports analogies, so here's one. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) My husband plays hockey and was always told what you do in practice, you do in the game. So, Julie, what are some areas in our life we need to be careful about? Well, I can think of three big ones, our information, our opportunities, and our time. What do you mean by information? Well, this goes back to the recent programs that we've had on gossip, lying, and forgiveness. And it's, what do we do with what we know? Can we keep someone's confidence? Can we resist telling a secret even if it's true? And this is how we show respect to both the listener and the one that the juicy story is about. I think it's especially important to keep confidence in our marriages and keep private issues between you and your spouse. Sure. Now, what about our opportunities? Well, it's, it's important that we're, we're trustworthy in these opportunities because God promised that the faithful followers of Jesus would receive glory, honor, and immortality. Oh, Romans 2.7. That's right, Romans 2.7. Now, immortality means not having to rely on any external source for life. God doesn't just hand out immortality to anyone. Can you imagine having beings 
that even he couldn't destroy if they turned against him. And remember, the Apostle Paul told us specifically, we are running for that prize of immortality. It isn't just given to us. So this is so important. God absolutely must be able to trust us. Our characters have to be so perfected that we'll do the right thing when no one is looking and regardless of the personal consequences or gain to us. And we're given these opportunities every single day. And the big question is, are we tuned in to recognize them? And are we taking advantage of them? Maybe an example of that would be visiting someone, say, in a hospital or a nursing home, or giving someone a ride to Bible study. Exactly. And maybe something even as easy as writing a card of encouragement. We don't all have the opportunity to do the big things, like be weekly Christian radio hosts like you and Rick. <laughs> but there's always a way to serve the Lord in other ways. And you just have to watch for and sometimes create your own opportunities. But one thing I've learned volunteering with Christian Questions God's work will go forward with me or without me. So if I let that opportunity go by, somebody else is going to get that blessing. And Julie, I think you're a great example of taking opportunities like you did by initiating CQ Rewind and all the extras you do for the Christian Questions website. Oh. And lastly, let's talk about time. Although we probably recognize it easier as the opposite, like wasting time, yeah. uh, time, time is so easy to waste and we don't get it back. Well, you know, you're right. And our hours are dedicated to family, school, or our employer. But what I've learned is the minutes in between belong to us. We all find a way to do what we really want to do. So maybe you make the commitment to listening to Christian questions for two hours on Monday nights instead of watching the big game. Maybe we can read a scripture first thing when you get up before we check our phone for emails. Maybe we step away from social media and show God that we can spend our time more profitably, that we can be trusted with the time he has provided for us. So this week, we want to think about being more trustworthy with our information, our opportunities, and our time. Thank you, Julie, for joining us on our episode tonight. Thank you. Have a great evening. I'll continue to listen. Julie, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Sure. You know what, Jonathan? Really, really well done. Uh, and information, opportunities, and time. Am I trustworthy, not to you, not to Julie, but to God Almighty? I mean, that's the point of this discussion, being worthy of God's trust. And by, look, if you're worthy of God's trust, then you're worthy of anybody else's trust, okay? So you, you work on the, on, on the big one. Amen. And the rest of them come, fall into place. <laughs> hey, let, let's take a moment, Julie. Thanks again. Really appreciate uh, your, your thoughtfulness on that. Uh, let's, let's go back to the, the story by David Horsager. Remember now his, two, his son and his daughter were chosen to be mutton busters, to ride a sheep <laughs> at the rodeo to see how long they could hang on. And remember, they were scared to death. Yes. So let's drop back in on this story. Now, they know how to do this in Texas and Oklahoma and Canada, but Minnesota, they're just learning because those kids would get on the sheep, they would sit on there like this, the sheep would take off, and the kid would fall off. I'd seen this before. Vanessa, she's one of the last to go. So, Vanessa, you can't do it like that. Vanessa, you've got to take those dangly eight-year-old legs, you've got to wrap them around the belly, you've got to pinch your heels as tight as you can. Vanessa, you can't sit up like this. You've got to lay down. You've got to Velcro your belly to the wool. You've got to wrap your arms around the neck. You've got to dig your fingers into the wool. And what if it's you, Vanessa? Don't let go. <laughs> I'm a great dad. 
<laughs> what a riot. So he's all excited. He's all excited because he's, he's setting her up for success. He's telling her all the right things. And he says, and whatever you do, just don't let go. Velcro your body to that sheep. I love that. <laughs> all right. We're going to put that on hold because this is a lesson in trust. And we're going to see how this develops uh, as the program unfolds even further. And Jonathan, just by way of review, we started that new parable, the parable of the landowner. Let's just reread verses 33 and 34 because we've got to do a little bit more defining of the characters, if you will, and then move forward. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Okay, so the vine growers, or the husbandmen, depending on your translation, are the Pharisees. And we know that because later on in this chapter, it says so, Matthew twenty-one forty-five. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. Okay, so it's really easy to figure out who they are in this particular story. McClintock and Strong's Encyclopedia of the Bible d clearly defines the husbandmen or the vine grower and the, 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 uh, the magnitude of their responsibilities. One whose profession and labor is to cultivate the ground. It is among the most ancient and honorable occupations. So that's important. It's an ancient occupation and it's honorable. To be a vine grower or a husbandman for somebody else was a very honorable position to have. It's much more than menial. Right. It's, it's to have a position like that is to be engaged in a work that requires great trust, which can only be fulfilled when one has the character to earn that trust. And amazingly enough, that brings us to our next pillar of trust. We had clarity as the first pillar, compassion as the second pillar. The third pillar is character. Your character reflects your heart. A godly character reflects that attitude of heart that does, is, and thinks in terms of the needs of those around you and does so self, selflessly and humble with humble energy. Okay, so character, re, your character actually reflects your heart. So you want to know what your character is, look at what your heart is, because it's a reflection. One reflects the other. Selfless and humble energy is what, is what are the earmarks of a sound, godly type character. First Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 to 7, this is when they were going to try to find a king in Israel because Saul wasn't working out so well. And uh, so... Uh, Samuel's looking for the next king, and he's going, um, and, and he's looking at the the uh, the what, six or seven brothers of of David. I forget six or seven. Anyway, First Samuel sixteen six to seven. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, "Surely the Lord's anointed is before him." But the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance." But the Lord looks at the heart. Remember, your character reflects your heart. So I love this verse, Jonathan, because Eliab was a tall brother, the firstborn, and he had all the, the, the looks of the, the, the powerful man. And Samuel thinks when he sees him, oh, this has got to be the guy. Look at him. And God says, not so fast. <laughs> it's not the tall guy I'm interested in here. Okay. The one with the right heart. Yeah, and, and he's a shorter guy. Just want to just brought, bring that in. You know, David was obviously shorter, and there was great value in that. And I take great, you know, great encouragement and things like that. Well, Rick, David had a character that God could trust 
for God knew his heart. And the interesting thing about David's heart is David made a lot of mistakes. And he made some really big mistakes. But in the making of those mistakes, he always found his way back to God because his heart was sound. It was, you know, and David is called a man after God's own heart. So his heart reflected a great, great uh, character that could be trustworthy in spite of the mistakes he made. And again, that's great encouragement for us. And it's a matter of character is one of those things that is so important in understanding, uh, are we trustworthy to God? Trustworthy, the, the trustworthiness test in relation to this pillar uh, number three of trust, which is character. Is my character driven by that attitude of heart that translates my inner thoughts of godliness into outward actions of Christ-likeness that sees challenges, that engages in solutions, and that builds others up. Can God trust my character? Not my desire, not my thoughts, not the way I look on Sunday when I go to church. Can God trust my character? We welcome all comments or questions, even if you disagree with us. Give us a call. We're live at 866-985-FOR-ALL. That's 866-985-4255. So character is the third pillar of trust. And again, how can we understand if we're trustworthy to God? Do we have clarity in our, in our position before God? Do we have compassion that is driven by godliness? And do we have character that reflects a heart that is leaning towards and trying to grow into a, a more mature godliness? So with this third pillar of trust in in place, character. Let's go a little bit further uh, in the story of the vine growers. Matthew 21, now verses 35 and 36. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. So what is that? (laughs) First of all, (laughs) that's the wrong answer, okay? You know, the the owner is going to check up on those he has put in in positions of responsibility, and obviously they have no character whatsoever. Not at all. Okay, and they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But this brings us even to another further area where the Pharisees were wrong, because this is more than just an issue of character here. Let's, as an example of, of what we want to get to here, let's go to Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. Now, this is about Stephen. Before he is going to be stoned to death, he is given an opportunity to speak, and boy, does he speak. And, and he, what, a, what a heart he had. Yes, absolutely <laughs> had a, a heart for God here. So what does he say? Matthew, and, and again, this is just a very, very, very small snippet from his, his, uh, uh, his sermon, if you will, in Acts 7. We're just reading 51 uh, to 53. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So he is prophetically speaking of them just the way Jesus had prophetically spoken of them. They had already crucified Jesus by the time Stephen was on on the scene. And he's saying to them, you know better. You You still have become no better than that. I mean, what is wrong with you? Where is the godliness? So it's a very poignant uh, uh, 
uh, position to understand the lack and therefore the lack of trust that God would have for someone with, with uh, those thoughts in their minds. Let's take a moment, Jonathan. I want to go to a reading from the book Moments with the Savior. This was in the chapter Jesus in the Temple, and it's talking about this very parable, the parable of the landover, landowner and the destiny of the prophets. And it just, it just helps to put it into a very poignant, clear position. God had sent prophets to Israel to point out the holes in their spiritual walls and the places where weeds had overgrown their hearts. But the prophets were not well received. Elijah was relentlessly pursued by Ahab and Jezebel. Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple under the reign of Joash. Jeremiah was imprisoned and later stoned. Isaiah was mocked and later sawn in two by order of Manasseh. Amos was beaten to death with a club. Generation after generation, God kept sending his servants to the vineyard. But generation after generation, those servants were beaten, treated shamelessly, wounded, and thrown out. So it gives you a sense of what was happening outside of the, the uh, out, even long before we got to the point of the New Testament and Jesus example here. So our fourth pillar of trust, Jonathan, is that of contribution. To contribute is to bring results on some level, and this is a sound proving ground for the building of trust. Contribution, especially on a consistent basis, indicates an all-in kind of attitude, and such an attitude will always foster growth. Now, the vine growers in the parable did a good job developing the vineyard, but they did a very bad job in the reasons they were developing the vineyard. They had the wrong heart. They, had the wrong, they were contributing to the wrong thing. Contribution, you know, let, let's take a quick look at Elijah because in the reading it mentioned Elijah and he clearly delineates the difference between he and the, the rest of Israel. First Kings 19.10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. So he's comparing himself with Israel, saying, I'm, I'm all by myself. So our trustworthiness trap here is really simple when it comes to, uh, comes to con- contribution. What and to whom am I contributing to on a regular basis? Do I use the cause, that is the cause of Christianity, as a cover for contributing to my own cause? What growth does my contribution foster? Can God trust my contributions because if my contributions are not to ultimate godliness then they're to a waste of time and to something that god cannot trust folks we'll be back again in the second hour continuing our conversation on becoming trustworthy in the eyes of god it's a really important conversation that helps us to understand what we need to do how we need to live in order to do so for jonathan and rick and christian questions we'll be back in just a couple minutes but till then how do you know that God can trust you. Think about it. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. You're tuned into Christian Questions. Join the conversation now on air or online at ChristianQuestions.com. And download our app by searching for Christian Questions Radio. Here's Rick and Jonathan.
Brian Tracy once said, the glue that holds all relationships together, including the relationship between the leader and the led, is trust. And trust is based on integrity. Good evening. Welcome back. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And Jonathan, what is that topic that's on the table tonight? Well, Rick, our question is, how do you know God can trust you? And our theme text is found in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. Okay, so we're talking about trust, but again, we're not talking about trust the way we'd normally talk about it. Can I trust you? Can you trust me? The question is, can God trust you, and can God trust me? And in order to put ourselves in the position to be trustworthy by God himself, there are, we are using eight pillars of trust by David Horsager. He has written several books on trust. Uh, we're following a story, uh, a, a real-life story of his own life and experience that he and his children had. Um, but Jonathan, we covered four of those pillars of trust from David Horsager in the first hour. The first pillar is clarity. Clarity always fosters trust. For us to be worthy of God's trust, we must not only think and profess but live a life of clarity in his service. Okay, so clarity. Know where, know why, know how, know when. It's knowing and then being clear on what your role is supposed to be. The second pillar of trust is compassion. To have compassion is to care about others. It is to, at your own expense, make room in your heart for embracing the hardships and failures of those whom you may not normally even notice. Compassion is godly. We have to be careful to make sure that we apply our compassion in a godly way, uh, in a godly manner, in, in all ways, in all times. But compassion is one of the highways through, through which, we, when we're on the highway of compassion, God can trust us, as long as our compassion is godly. The third character, the third pillar, rather, of trust is character. Your character reflects your heart. A godly character reflects that attitude of heart that does, is, and thinks in terms of the needs of those around you, and does so with selfless and humble energy. So your character reflects your heart. You want to know what your character is, look at what's in your heart. That's going to tell you what your character is. And that's a, that's a, that's a very powerful thing to think about. The fourth pillar of trust is contribution. To contribute is to bring results. And this is a sound proving ground for the building of trust. Contribution on a consistent basis indicates an all-in kind of attitude. All right, so clarity, compassion, character, and contribution. Those are the first four pillars of trust that we discussed in the first hour. We're looking at the parable of the landowner to draw from it lessons of how the Pharisees did not fulfill these things and ended up being cast off because they were not trustworthy. And Rick, Brian Tracy's quote, they all have ingredients of integrity yeah. within them, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and that's such an important thing. Integrity is one of those things that just is so interwoven in trust, you can't even separate the two. Where there is integrity, there is trust. Where there is trust, there ought to be integrity. See, trust, if you trust in somebody who does not have integrity, you are destined for disappointment. 
Absolutely. And so you, you're right. You've got to have it clear. Let's, before we go any further, let's go back to the story, uh, David Horsager's story about his two children. Remember his daughter, Vanessa? They went to their very first rodeo in northern Minnesota out in the boondocks. And she gets to be a... Uh, um, uh, a mutton bus- buster. <laughs> mutton buster. That's it. I couldn't remember. <laughs> you know, and so during the rodeo, in the sort of at halftime, they let five to eight year old kids see how long they can hang on to and ride a sheep. So he, she has seen other kids keep falling off the sheep, and her dad, who understands this, tells her, "Okay, Velcro your body to the sheep. You know, just hold on to the to the wool, wrap your legs tight, and just just don't let go." Okay, so that's where we left off with the story. Let's get back to it. They open the bull gate. That sheep takes off out of there. She's like, <laughs> People are look at the little, can you believe the little, she's still one. You know what, that she runs all the way across the arena to the far corner where all the sheep gathered that dumped off their kids. That's what sheep do. They gather together and they laugh. <laughs> First sheep that it sees, it butts it right in the side. Bam! She goes, ah! But she holds on. Sheep doesn't know what to do, so it takes off around the arena. She's a little bit sideways now, but... <laughs> Second time around the arena, Verndale, Minnesota. 2,000 people standing up, screaming and cheering. Stoic Norwegian has a tear. It's his granddaughter. <laughs> so, so this little girl is literally holding on for dear life. She's scared to death, Rick. She is scared to death, but she is absolutely positively holding on. No question about that. She's just, just holding on. So a great story. And again, she trusted what her dad said. You know, hold on, he told her how, and she's doing exactly what her dad had said. This is a great lesson in trust. Let's go back to Matthew 21, 37 to 39. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So here you have the situation where the vine growers have not only destroyed and wounded slaves, you know, other individuals that came from the landowner to get a report. The, the landowner says, okay, I'll send them my son. Surely they will respect him. Now, obviously, we know what this picture is. The picture of the scribes and Pharisees uh, crucifying Jesus. Exactly. And so they sent him, and their reaction is not one of respect, but one of disdain. See, they're so far off. They are so far off from the reality of where they should be. You know, just a few weeks after Jesus had performed his greatest miracle, he he raised Lazarus. That was the greatest miracle that he performed because Lazarus was in the grave for four days. The effects of that miracle upon the vine growers uh, was very, very sadly predictable. Uh, But Jonathan, before we get to that, before we go to John chapter 11, we do have a caller on the line. We've got Julius on the line. Good evening, Julius. Welcome to Christian Questions. Good evening. Thank you. How are you guys? Doing well, sir. Doing well. Good. You sound good. Uh, Yes. uh, You know, so many thoughts come to my mind. And I was just thinking about before uh, you you came on that uh, trust is so rare in these days. (laughs) I was thinking there's more gold out there than trust. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, that's how scarce it is. before a couple of comments, I appreciated Julie's uh, analysis and trust. Mm-hmm. And here's an interesting thing. The scripture that she gave, I gave a sermon 
possibly before you guys were born. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> you're old. <laughs> you're old, Julius. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm octogenarian. I'm, I'm past 80. Oh, man. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yeah, that was my theme text. Okay. Uh, Luke 1610. So uh, uh, I, I, uh, I had a poem, I had a poem, a beautiful poem that I'm going to send that poem to Julie. I, I found a way to send it to her. She'll, she'll think she'll get a kick out of it. Uh, but anyway, yeah, on, on this uh, compassion and uh, character and so forth, a couple, a couple of scriptures come to mind. Uh, remember Acts chapter 10. When Cornelius was chosen by God, remember Peter yes. objected. He says, well, you know, you, you can uh, choose this guy. He's not worthy, whatever. Peter objected, but God says, all right, he's the man. And I think compassion. God trusted Cornelius because of his compassion. If you recall, he gave alms. Remember? Yes, yes, yes. Cornelius gave alms. Now, that's one one example. One more. Uh, why did uh, God pass by Aaron and favored Moses? Uh, you know, Aaron was all Aaron was three three years older than Moses. Okay. Why why did God choose Aaron to deliver his people? Why? There you go. <laughs> Trust. Okay. <laughs> God felt that the, Moses was his man that he could trust to do the mission that he had him to do. Just a couple of examples. Thank you, and God bless. Julius. Thank you, Julius. Appreciate your call. And I think of meekness when I think of Moses. And so he had that right type yeah. of heart, so pride didn't get to him, right? Correct. Correct. On the other hand, uh, Aaron, remember, he, he led the gang to build the golden calf. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It wasn't a good choice. <laughs> All right, Julius, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Have a good night. You too. Take care. Okay, so uh, good good thoughts there. The, the example of Cornelius, a very, very important uh, example, uh, because Cornelius was worthy of trust. He was out of favor with God, and yet he did everything to honor and please God with nothing in return. That is being trustworthy. So when it came time for the first Gentile convert, it was a no-brainer. I mean, Rick, he had clarity, compassion, character, yeah. and contribution all wrapped up. Yeah, and he had the rest of character. them, too. That's right. He had the other yeah. four that we haven't gotten to yet as well. So, okay, Julius, thanks so much for the thoughts. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, John, uh, Jonathan, we were about to go to John chapter 11, verses 49 to 53. This was... Um, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And this is the reaction of the Pharisees to this incredible miracle. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So Caiaphas led the way in preparing for the trapping and the, the extermination of Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest, the guy in charge, was as untrustworthy as you could be because he had his own agenda in mind. 
not God's agenda. And it's really simple. According to Scripture, he should have been able to see the signs. And we're going to get into some of those signs as we go through uh, the rest of the program here. Now, just the day before... Uh, of this this particular parable that we're reading, the, the parable of the landowner, Jesus had cleansed the temple, and the Pharisees had reacted to that. Now, see, they're reacting to the raising of Lazarus in, in John 11. In Mark 11, 15 to 18, they're reacting to what Jesus had done in the cleansing of the temple. Mark 11, 15 to 18. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise throughout the temple. So he took the temple hostage. He basically said, enough. Nobody can come. Nobody can go. Just stop. Because you've ruined this place. You've made it, the, you've made it into the wrong thing. You've made it into a place that God is not able to, to, to dwell in. Therefore, a place where God cannot trust. So, so go ahead. And he began to teach and say to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So you, you, you look at this and you say, Man, what happened here? Jonathan, go ahead. And Rick, some of those selling the animals were overcharging the poor people traveling from far distances, and they were being taken advantage of. Right. So how dishonest is that? And how untrustworthy in the sight of God is that? And this is why, this is the reason why Jesus took it apart. Because it was not a godly action or activity. It didn't have clarity and compassion. It didn't have character. It didn't have contribution. It, had, it was exactly the opposite of all of those things. And the next pillar is going to be competency. And we're going to see that the Pharisees were showing a complete lack of competency. But we're not, not ready to go there. Let's go back to uh, a reading from uh, Moments of the, with the Savior. Remember, we, we had a reading in the last, uh, last hour. And it was talking about the destiny of the prophets and how the prophets were, 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 were tormented and killed and, and just pulled off the scene ruthlessly because they were not being understood as the messengers of God. So let's go back to this, um, to this chapter from Moments with the Savior. And the interesting thing about this part of the reading, Jonathan, is this parable is very unique. It's very unique in one particular aspect, and we'll hear that uh, in this reading. The parable teaches two things about God's patience. It is long-suffering, and it has its limits. God's judgment comes only after generations of showing patience to the nation. He had sent Israel one prophet after another until at last he sent his own beloved son to reason with them. But after that fateful Passover week in Jerusalem, his patience reached its end. The parable is like no other Jesus has told. It is the only one that contains his own obituary. Imagine how he must have felt as he told his followers of his fate. What profound grief! What pain for the nation that had rejected him! And that, that's a very, very somber thought that Jesus, in telling this particular parable, is talking about his own obituary. He's saying to those listening, to those who were his followers as well as to the Pharisees, this is how I'm going to meet my end. 
this is what's going to happen. This is how I will die. So you, you, you see the dramatic contrast between the trustworthiness of Jesus and, and, and the lack of trustworthiness of the Pharisees because they're on two opposite sides of, of, of the issue here. You know, the, the next pillar of trust is, one, is, is competency. And when you think about that, you think about how incredibly competent Jesus was to carry out the mission. Then you look at the other side and say, wow, what a difference. So competency, Jonathan, the pillar number five of trust. Competency is much more than knowing the right answer or knowing the objectives or understanding the vision. Competency is implementing those answers, performing those objectives, and living the vision. See, competency is doing it. It's being it. It is being absorbed by the things that we know. It's much bigger than just a, a thought. And too often we think that because I know, therefore I'm competent. Not at all. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, a good example. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Rick, we all make mistakes, so we need to be compassionate when others make theirs. Absolutely. And competency is rising above and living the things that we know. So our trustworthiness trap in relation to competency is as follows. True competency is easily confused in our thinking with ambition, especially selfish ambition. Why do I see myself as competent? Is it because of how I feel or is it because of how I apply what I have learned to the glory of God? Can God trust my competency? Is it worth his trust? Can he look at me and say, yeah, you're good? This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject is, how do you know God can trust you? Coming up. How do we connect with God and others in a way that lends towards God trusting us? That's next. When the world falls into... You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Oh, oh, oh. Welcome back. Our subject for today's episode is, How Do You Know God Can Trust You? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. And if you'd like to write to us, you can write us at Christian Questions, P.O. Box 1837, New London, Connecticut, 06320. Lots of ways to get in touch and stay in touch, and we love it when you do that. Jonathan, we have a comment from the CQ app. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's, it's, it actually talks about a very good lesson, so I'm going to try to work through this. It says, in the past, whenever I would offer help to someone and they accept it, I found myself sometimes feeling resentful about, how, how, about having to carry it out, usually because I didn't actually have the time or the means, but I offered them help anyway, never imagining they would actually take me up on it. Okay. I think sometimes we offer help, but we don't really mean it. 
We just want to appear gracious and helpful, and our attitude can quickly turn sour if the other person accepts that help and we weren't being sincere in our offer. So, you know, this is really about trustworthiness in, in making an offer. So, the, the writer says, I figured out a way to determine if I really mean what I say or if I'm just trying to look good. It's called workshopping. It means that before I ever offer my help, I really think hard about if I can carry it through if they take me up on it. If in my heart, when I imagine the other person actually accepting the offer, I feel immediately burdened or stressed, I know the help I'm offering is not sincere and I should not open my mouth. And there's some wisdom in this about really not biting off more than you can chew so you can be worthy of trust. Uh, they continue, I'm just going to have to have a bad attitude, uh, I'm sorry, you know, I shouldn't open my mouth, I'm just going to have a bad attitude about doing it, and since God loves a cheerful giver, I want to al- avoid that at all costs. If, however, I role-play the situation in my mind where the other person accepts my help, and I genuinely feel good about delivering what I promised, I know that I can definitely go ahead and offer my help, and the person receiving that help can fully trust that I mean what I say, and that I'm genuinely happy to do it. So really, that, that fits in so well with, with uh, our, our conversation and with competency. You know, being competent to do the things that we say we're going to do. And, and the, the individual, and they're from uh, Illinois, uh, writing, what they're saying is, I try to think it through so that if I offer, I'm going to follow through. That's what and, the, and then the sacrifice will be accepted because it's a cheerful giver. Right, right. And, you know, you're, and, and you're helping, you're genuinely helping that other person because you're, you're working within what you are capable of doing. You know, Jonathan, there, there are so many things that I could offer to help others do, but it would be a disaster because I'm not capable. You know, so you don't do those things. You do the things that you can't. So great, great thoughts from the uh, CQ app. Folks, keep that up. We really enjoy uh, hearing from you. Let's go back, Jonathan, to our little mutton buster, Vanessa. She's she's riding the sheep and uh, she's made it all the way across the arena and, and all the way back and all the way back. <laughs> and she's st- now she's a little bit sideways, a little bit crooked, but she's still hanging on. So let's see what happens next. Third time around the arena. The clowns come out. <laughs> Little girl, you can let go now. You can, she will not let go. <laughs> Finally, they get the sheep stopped over in the corner, but she won't get off. The announcer didn't know what to do. 2,000 people screaming and cheering. The rodeo queen's getting off her perch, walking toward the middle for, to, with a trophy for the kid that lasted the longest. But she won't get off. So. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter what anybody says she won't get off and you say okay is she that petrified i mean what's happening there and, and and the answer to that is coming up in the next segment and it's a great great conclusion to our story uh, on trust well so the moral of the story is never listen to the clowns of life <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah really yeah clowns can be scary <laughs> so uh it, 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 again, it's about trusting the right things and then learning how to be worthy of being trusted, not just by the people around you, but by God himself. Let's go back to our parable, Matthew 21, verses 40 to 41. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. So it's interesting. When the Pharisees are asked the right question, they're going to give the right answer. 
and in accurately, accurately giving the right answer, saying, oh, they're going to come to a wretched end because they have not been trustworthy. They were actually revealing themselves. They were revealing the fabric of their own future. And that, and again, see, Jesus had a way of helping people to be able to do that. And that is a great tool to help turn people around. The problem is a lot of people don't turn around. They just dig themselves deeper into the hole uh, that they're in. And this was the case uh, with the Pharisees. And, and Jesus, not too long after that, fulfills this parable with a very direct statement in Matthew 23, 37 and 38. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So there is the fulfillment of what's happening. There's the, the, what, what you see is this is the end result of not being worthy of God's trust. We're looking at today's mainstream and biblical topics from several different angles. We couldn't do it without our great supporters. Join our conversation by calling now. We're live and look forward to talking with you at 866-985-4255. All right. Um, so, so, Jonathan, this brings us to our next pillar of trust. This is the sixth out of eight pillars of trust. This pillar of trust is connection. True connection can only happen when real communication is working both ways. Connection is established through respect and interest in another, and it builds an environment where trust absolutely flourishes. All right, so true connection. Well, Rick, I was discussing this with my wife, and she said it's like a friend who always shares from their heart their experiences but we don't reciprocate and share in return. It's only one-sided. When both share, that builds trust. And I told her, oh, that's just a girl thing because guys don't share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys better share. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> but, you know, it's so true. Having two-way communication establishes connection. You know, if I can hear you but you can't hear me, that's not a real connection. And everything is going to get missed. Things are going to be mis misunderstood, misrepresented, because you're not hearing one another. So it's interesting because the connection the Pharisees had was not to God. Now, they represented themselves as having that connection, but their connection was to their position. It was to their own pride. It was to their own ego. It was to their own hypocrisy. God cannot, will not trust us if we fall into that kind of situation. So when we when we want to look at this, you know, I'm trying to decide whether I should bring this up or not. I'll, I'll wait. Okay. <laughs> Let's take a look at real connection in Scripture, real heartfelt, deep connection. This is the Apostle Paul when he was leaving Ephesus. And if you remember in this, in this account in Acts chapter 21, uh, he's, he's basically told if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to get into all kinds of trouble. And the brethren in Ephesus don't want him to go. So let's listen to how this, this event unfolds and the connection involved. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem 
will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. So Agabus prophesies and says Paul is going to end up bound. And everybody believes him because it's from the, the power and influence of God. And so now everybody's reaction is, Paul, you can't go. Don't go. Don't you realize what's going to happen if you go there? You can't. They cared so much about him. They weren't, this wasn't just lip service. This was, that was a heartfelt connection, Rick. Rick. This is heart service, begging him to be protected because they loved him so well. Here's Paul's response. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. You hear the connection? Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? He didn't say to them, Look, get over yourselves. Stop crying. Get up. Be men. He didn't say that. He said, what are you doing? You're breaking my heart. Because he saw in them their outpouring of their connection with him. And he returns that by saying, look, you've got to realize that I'm, not, I'm ready to not just be bound, but I'm ready to die at Jerusalem if that's what God wants from me. It doesn't matter because I'm about something bigger and something higher. So Paul's connection with them was just as powerful. So much so that when he said what he needed to say, what was their reaction? They got quiet. They stopped. And they said, okay, let God's will be done. It's a powerful, powerful story of how connection really works. Well, Rick, with connection and trust comes a fierce loyalty like this example. And, and, you know, there's something about that fierce loyalty. And when you have uh, uh, loyalty, we should do a program just on loyalty one day. I think that's a great, great subject. But when you get to the point of having a fierce loyalty, it is so latched on. And that's what we see in, in this example. But what we see in the fierce loyalty was a humility that said, okay, if what we want for you is not what's best for you, then God's will be done. That's the fiercest kind of loyalty that has that humility as well. So connection brings trustworthiness. If we connect with others, we can be trusting and trusted. If we connect with God, with his will, with his way, with his word, then we can be going in the right direction. And God can trust us. It's just, it's such an incredible thing when you think about trustworthiness and how, how many ways the Pharisees fell short of that uh, in this particular par uh, parable. So the trustworthiness trap here in relation to connection is really simple. Are my connections genuine? Do I have a traceable respect an interest in the appropriate people for appropriately godly reasons, or am I just connected to what is ultimately my own agenda? See, Jonathan, what are we connected to and why are we connected to? Is it for my own good? Is it to make myself feel better for some reason? Or is it truly godly? Can God trust 
my connection? Can he trust it? Folks, that's the question we have to ask ourselves. There's a great quote from George MacDonald on this. To be trusted is a greater compliment than to be loved. <laughs> it's so true. You know, if you are trusted, that is the greatest compliment I think you can receive. You know, that you are trusted. You know, the, the, the phrase that Christians often talk about, you know, having been faithful, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What does that mean? Well done, O trustworthy individual. That's what it means. Got a comment from the CQ app. Hi, guys. Once again, thanks so much for the topic. If we are serious about our relationship with our Heavenly Father, it's really all about what we do for Him and not the other way around. Awesome lesson. Love you guys. And that's from Beth. Nice. So the idea of connection. So we've gone through six of these pillars so far, Jonathan. We've gone through clarity, compassion, character, contribution, competency, and connection. And it's given us a real sense of the, of the magnitude of what it takes to be worthy of trust. And every time we go back to the parable, what we see is the Pharisees falling down on the job, not fulfilling what they were called upon to do. Let's continue Matthew 21 with the parable, verses 42 and, and 43. Now remember, the Pharisees already gave the answer. They already said, you know, because Jesus asked them, what's going to happen to those, those vine growers? And the Pharisees said, oh, they're doomed. Oh, they're doomed. Uh, yeah, those wretches are going to come to an end. Right, right. So Jesus now has to build upon that, and he builds upon it as only Jesus ever did, with Scripture and with wisdom. Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. So Jesus here gives the Pharisees prophetic reasons and warnings as to their fate to come and as to a result of their decisions. Notice how he's not simply relying on the works that he did in his father's name, and there were plenty of those, but he's, he's relying heavily on the inspired words of the prophets. He's going back to those prophets and saying, this is about you. And again, he's quoting from Psalm, 8, 1, uh, Psalm 118, 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So that's the verse he's quoting. And when you look at the way Jesus lived, if we go back, for instance, to the Gospel of John, the first book of the, or the first book, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, what we see there is sort of a summation to begin with. It's telling you, okay, I'm writing, I'm writing this down because this is what Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. In verses 11 to 13, it's, it's looking back upon what Jesus accomplished and the things that he had to go through. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what this is really showing us is that God does seek for those whom he can trust. And if he can't trust me, he will. And Julie brought this out in, in, in her uh, few minutes in the first hour. If he doesn't trust me, he'll find somebody else to do that job. It's not about me. It's about me learning to be trustworthy because really it's about God 
and his will. That is what it's really about. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject is, how do you know God can trust you? Coming up, what does the missing of the fulfillment of prophecy by the Pharisees mean to us? That's next. listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today's episode is, How do you know God can trust you? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Out from the dark ages, errors from the past, and into the light of today, the original good news. Join us 24-7 at ChristianQuestions.com. So, Jonathan, in the last segment we were talking about prophecy and how prophecy uh, applied meant so much to Jesus because that's what he was there to do. He was there to fulfill those prophecies and to point them out as the way to, to be trustworthy before God. And the Pharisees just wouldn't listen. Now, before we get back to all of that, we really need to conclude the mutton-busting story. All right. Okay, so Vanessa has been riding this sheep throughout the arena, round now three times. And, and the she cl- won't let go. Right, the clowns come out and say, little girl, you can let go. And, 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 and the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the queen or the whatever of the, the rodeo, I forget what she's called, comes out to you know, offer the, the trophy. And, the, and, and she, she just isn't letting go. So you've got to figure, okay, what's happening here? Here is the conclusion of that story. Is there a dad here? <laughs> I'll never forget it. Walk out into that arena. I walk over to my daughter. I pick off my daughter. 2,000 people stay screaming and cheering. And I will never forget what she said in my ear. Daddy, why did the clown say let go? You said never let go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful she trusted me. But... She also trusted herself. And, as important, she knew who not to trust. Don't trust clowns, they're scary. (laughs) Trust is a choice. Every single time you choose it or choose against it, it has benefits or consequences. Imagine what would happen if you could be that person that was trusted by everybody every time. What a great ending to that story. Imagine if you could be that person that was trusted by everybody every time. What would that mean? Just a powerful, powerful, powerful message. But the point of that story, Jonathan, was she wouldn't let go because her dad said never let go. And until her dad gave her permission, she was hanging on. That is trust. And she did. She trusted herself to fulfill what her dad had said. So it's a wonderful, wonderful example, kind of funny, and hopefully it sticks with you, about the importance of putting trust in the right places and the right people, especially as we're talking about tonight in God. So that brings us to our seventh pillar of trust, and that is commitment. Commitment is standing true through adversity, doubt, and failure. It is being willing to step up one more time. 
being willing to be challenged one more time and being willing to get up off of the mat one more time, commitment attracts trust. It really, really, truly does. And the Pharisees had no commitment to anything but themselves. Jesus, on the other hand, was utterly committed to the will of his Father, to the prophecies of Scripture, and fulfilled them perfectly. He was trustworthy. The Pharisees were not. Let's take a look at another scripture that helps us to understand that level of commitment that God is looking for so he can trust me. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 28. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In fair, more labors. In far more imprisonments. Beaten times without number. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews... Thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. So for, for most of those, Jonathan, those are personal enemies attacking the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he was so trustworthy to God that he would not back down when it came to being godly. And he suffered great consequences for it. And Rick, he wasn't boasting here. He was sharing experience so that Others could draw the faith and right. strength from him. Right. It wasn't his way to, 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 to boast. And that's why he says, I speak as if insane, because he was looking at, at others who were trying to contradict him. And he's saying, okay, look, if, you're, if you want to listen to them, do they have the same track record? Look, I'm speaking like a fool here, but let me just tell you what I've been through. Because he was showing them, I am worthy of God's trust. Please trust me as well. Continue. Verses 26 to 27. I have been in frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and a exposure. So he has had so many, many, many troubles here, many, many, many trials. You know, the landscape has given him trouble. Rivers, robbers, countrymen, Gentiles, cities, wilderness, the sea, false brethren, all, every turn of life, the apostle met with danger. You think he's proven himself? And that's the point. His commitment was such that here, this is the proof of my life. This is the proof that I am committed and that I am worthy of God's trust. And that's why he was trusted with writing half of the New Testament. This is the evidence. This shows you how his mind was completely, utterly, totally one-dimensional in everything that he did. Now look, the Apostle Paul... Serving God. Right. Look, he <laughs> made it? mistakes, okay? He made a mistake here and he made a mistake there. Everybody's human. We all make mistakes, but he would get up and he'd go back after it and he would never look back. And, and that's the kind of commitment that is worthy of God's trust. So when we look at this, oh, I'm sorry, verse 28, we have to finish this. Because, okay, wait, wait, before you go. Because, okay, so you got all of these difficult things happening. All of this stuff, all of these people, all of these circumstances, all of these, uh, these, these uh, disasters happening around him. And he's bearing it up and carrying it and moving through. And then he adds one more thing. 
And he didn't even talk about being bit by that viper, yeah. <laughs> by the way. That's true. Again, now he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So he had personal enemies, he had physical challenges, and he had spiritual responsibility. And he felt the weight and the necessity of performance with the churches. He, he was the big brother. Right. He, he, he wanted to just pour it out to encourage so that, that each one that he was talking with would be faithful uh, to the Lord. And that is why he was worthy of such deep and abiding trust from God. So when we look at commitment, we've got to look at the trustworthiness trap that would come our way as a result of, of, of looking at, at our commitments. Our trustworthiness trap, commitment, is similar to competency in that it can be easily misdirected towards selfish ambition. See, let me just pause there for a minute, Jonathan, before we finish the, the description, because it is way too easy to get involved in selfish ambition and be committed to it and tell ourselves that that's commitment to God. Way too easy. As a matter of fact, that can not only happen on a personal level, but can, it can happen on a congregational level as well. When you think about it, if you look back to the Dark Ages, you look, you look back at, at the reign of papacy for all of those years, their commitment was to the church papal system and in so in being committed to that, what they did is they scared people, they tortured people, they killed people, they threatened people. That's not godly. That's not following in the footsteps of Jesus. But it's being committed. But it's being committed to the wrong thing. It was the selfish ambition of power that drove it. Do we fall into that now with our commitments? So let me start with this trustworthiness trap again with commitment. Commitment is similar to competency in that it can be easily misdirected toward selfish ambition. Such misdirection can blind us to truth and therefore blind us to what should be our true purpose. And that is being humble followers of Christ. That's what it's about. The question we have to ask ourselves is, can God trust my commitment? Can he trust my commitment? Not yours, mine. And Rick, we have to be careful because even good people that God uses can fall into that trap yes. like Saul before he became Paul. Right, right. Persecuting the church. Right. Ambition to do that. Yeah, yeah. He, he, was, he was always a good person at heart, but he was driven by the wrong things at the beginning. And he, was, he did vile things before God in the name of God. Right. When he realized it, you could see the character of his heart because he changed. Absolutely. And he became, like you said, the Apostle Paul. So Jesus, let's finish up this parable now. Jesus, remember he had quoted some, some prophecies to the Pharisees, and now he's just got one more to quote. Just because, you know, the thing about Jesus is when he put prophecy in play, he didn't just use one. He would tell them again and again and again, so they had ample evidence to check themselves and say, oh, look at this, maybe we should reconsider. Matthew 21, 44 to 46. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they understood he was speaking about them. 
when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So what a sad story that is because they completely missed the point. And again, he gives them one more prophecy. And I think that this prophecy, this prophetic illusion comes from Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You know, it's interesting, Jonathan, that that parable shows you the growth of God's kingdom through the earth. And again, and, and look, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be stepping on anybody's toes, but I, I was making some references to the papal system historically, and what they were trying to do was be the kingdom of God that filled the whole earth. Wrong kingdom, wrong time, wrong method, wrong belief, wrong everything. Wrong leadership. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. This is talking about through Christ how it that those who are, are stand against will eventually again day of judgment will have to be brought before that judgment so they can either make good or make bad they have a personal choice but it's about understanding Jesus is telling the Pharisees you are about to be crushed under the weight of your own uh, your own stubbornness your own commitment, if you will, your own consistency, if you will, and that's the next pillar that we're going to get to, your own consistency of, 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 of trying to, to make yourself look good. Stop it already. That's, I, you know, how, many more, how many different ways could Jesus have said that? So there's a deep sadness to the consistency that the Pharisees continued to display. They were consistently untrustworthy. And as a result, ended up being cast off. Let's go back one last time to the book Moments with the Savior, Jesus in the Temple, and a little bit of a lesson of Jesus' faithfulness toward us. Yet still, in spite of all the raw feelings churning inside him, the Savior was early to that courtyard, reaching out to the few vines that were reaching out to him, clearing away the weeds that had overrun their lives, feeding the roots that were struggling for deeper soil, encouraging the budding fruit on their eagerly branching faith. All this the Savior did, knowing full well that in a few days the wicked tenants would throw him outside of the city walls and have him brutally killed. Such is his faithfulness to his Father's vineyard and to those in it who are eager to grow. That's trustworthiness. What about us? How are we trustworthy? The last pillar of trust, Jonathan, is that of consistency. Consistency is the battleground of the everyday choices that we make, for good or for ill. What we constantly say, do, and think will form who we are and what we stand for, a constant rebooting of our conscience and retooling of our desire will unlock our everyday spiritual potential for consistency. See, we have a spiritual potential for consistency, but we don't always put it in play. And we have to reboot our conscience. We have to retool uh, our desire every single day so that we can be focused on exactly the right thing 
and put everything else aside because nothing else matters but learning to be worthy of God's trust. Great example of that, again, the Apostle Paul. We, we, we spent a lot of time this segment on the Apostle Paul. One more verse from the Apostle Paul before we close, and that is Philippians three twelve to 14. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may hold, lay hold of that for which also I laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul was showing us a model of consistency. He was showing us that, look, I forget what's going on behind me. And, and, you know, all those things that we read in 2 Corinthians, remember? He's saying, those are not relevant. What's relevant relevant is what what do I have to do today? What do I have to do tomorrow? What's my plan? What's my objective? What's my attitude? What's my work ethic for getting these things done? How am I being consistent? So finally, Jonathan, our last trustworthiness trap uh, in relation to consistency is this. What truly drives my consistency? Is it a selfless and spiritual focus, or is my consistency driven by ego or laziness or expediency? Does my consistency drive me toward God or towards my own futile and spiritually fruitless endeavors? The last question, can God trust my consistency? And, and, and Jonathan, this has everything to do with what we do um, between our Sunday go to meet and best. <laughs> You're right, Rick. It has everything to do with what we do the other 23 hours a day, you know, six, the other six days a week. And it, I like Julie's suggestion. In the morning, first thing, read a scripture. Get your focus. Get ready for that day. Right. Get your focus. Put things in order. And then figure on focusing on these pillars of trust, clarity, compassion, character, contribution, competency, connection, commitment, and consistency. Folks, it's about learning to be worthy of God's trust. What am I doing today? What am I doing tonight? What will I do? What will I be? What will I think so that God can better trust me, so I can better be a representative of Jesus here to those around me. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us tonight. We'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, how do you know God can trust you? What are we going to do to be worthy of his trust and be able to give his blessings to others as a result? Till next week, think about it. <laughs>